Thank you so much. Wow. If you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to join me in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus sends seven letters to seven churches. And as I said last time I spoke, these seven churches represent a cross-section of the church in any age. You will always find these kind of seven churches. So the question you need to ask yourself as we go through these is, which church are we? But more importantly, since the church is made up of individuals, if everybody in this church was just like you, what kind of church would it be? Now the church we'll consider this morning is the church in Ephesus. That's in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Ephesus was the capital of Asia, and it was the most prominent of these seven cities. Economically, it was a harbor on the Aegean Sea, had a system of elaborate docks, and it was a major trade route. Ships would come in and bring their goods there, and there were four major highways heading out from Ephesus out into Asia. Historians refer to it as the marketplace of Asia, and so economically, It was a vibrant place. Politically, it was what the Romans called a free city because there was no Roman garrison there. They were deemed responsible to govern themselves, and so there wasn't really this military presence in Ephesus. Socially, it was the site of annual athletic games comparable to the Olympic Games, and they would host those every year, and so they were pretty sophisticated when it came to handling a large crowd. There were a lot of uh, four-star hotels in Ephesus. And then religiously, it was a city devoted to paganism. It was the center for the worship of Artemis, or better known as Diana. The temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it stood in the city of Ephesus. If you can imagine, this temple was made totally of Persian marble. It was 425 feet long. It's about a block and a half. It was 250 feet wide. It had 130 hand-carved columns, each standing 60 feet high. It was like a professional football stadium in size, made out of marble. It was a temple to Diana, and inside this temple, since Diana was the goddess of fertility, there was a lewd female statue of her with multiple breasts. Their worship was accompanied by prostitution, orgies, and mutilation. And they were big on idols in Ephesus. They had silversmiths who made idols there, and everybody bought idols and took them home and put an idol in their house, or they bought a little idol and put it on a chain around their neck, or they bought an idol and put it on the dashboard of their chariot. They were big on idols, and it's in this pagan environment that Paul shows up in Acts chapter 19, and as was his custom, he began to preach in the synagogue, and he lasted about three months till they kicked him out. And he went to the school of Tyrannus, and there he stayed for three years preaching the gospel. The longest amount of time that we know that he spent in any city, he spent in the city of Ephesus. 
Extraordinary miracles took place there. This is the place where we're told that they took handkerchiefs from Paul and aprons from Paul and laid them on sick people and they were immediately made well. I don't think Paul had little handkerchiefs in his pocket. He was a tent maker, so these were shop rags and work aprons that they were taking from Paul. People were getting saved there. Their lives were being changed. In fact, there were so many people that got saved out of what's called magic, which is really witchcraft, that Acts 19 says they brought all their books on witchcraft and they put them together and they burned them. And the value of those books was 50,000 pieces of silver, which would be the equivalent today of $2 million. This church grew and had an impact on the entire city, so much so that it affected the economy. And so the silversmith union gathered together with the tradesmen who were selling the idols, and they ran Paul out of town because he was affecting the economy. So this was a church that had a great beginning, founded by the Apostle Paul. We know later that they had teachers such as Timothy, Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila. It was the elders from this church that Paul called to him on his last journey to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20 because he wanted to meet with them and weep with them. It's this church that he wrote the letter to the Ephesians in our New Testament, which I believe is the most impressive letter in the New Testament. Many think that John was ministering at this church when he was arrested and banished to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. And so this was a great church. It had a great foundation. But here in Revelation 2, it's about 60 years after the beginning of this church. And Jesus has something to say to them. He writes them a report card in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. It's kind of intriguing to me the way he begins because look at verse 1. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now in Revelation chapter 1, and I reminded you last time, the word revelation means unveiling. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And John sees Jesus unveiled in all His glory in chapter 1, and he describes Him in verses 12 to 18. And it's so impressive that we're told that John fell down like a dead man when he saw Jesus in all His glory. And as Jesus writes to each one of these churches, He pulls a little aspect out of that description in chapter 1 to highlight to each one of these churches And I think the reason he does that is he knows that's the particular aspect of his character that they need to know about. For instance, look at verse 8. Smyrna is the suffering church, and notice how he describes himself to this church. Verse 8, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. He's writing to a suffering church. What do they need to know about? They need to know that Jesus suffered too, and that he died, and that he conquered death. And so that's the aspect he gives them. I love this because it tells me that Jesus emphasizes a different feature of himself to each church because he can be whatever you need whenever you need him. 
Whatever your need is, Jesus shows up and says, I can relate to you because this is who I am. Do you need his white hair of wisdom? He's there. Do you need his right hand of power? He's there. Do you need that two-edged sword that's going to cut through the pretense in your life? He's there. Now, how does he describe himself to the church at Ephesus? He says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand. Now, in chapter 1, verse 20, he tells us what these stars are. They are angels. That word angel is really the word for messenger. It's used sometimes in the Bible of angelic beings. Sometimes it's used of human messengers. I take it to be human messengers. John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's on Alcatraz in that day. He's writing these seven letters dictated by Jesus, and these to me would be the seven messengers who are going to deliver these messages, come to those churches, and not only hand it to them, but stand up and read the letter to these churches. Many think they were probably the the primary pastor of each one of those churches, or the primary teacher of each one of those churches who would come and deliver that message. And then Jesus describes himself in verse 1 as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And in chapter 1, verse 20, we see that the lampstands are the churches. So Jesus is walking among the churches. This is Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. In fact, if you read the account, he didn't just ride on a donkey. He rode on the colt of a donkey. He was humble, and he rode into Jerusalem. And the people, the disciples who came with him, and there was a big crowd that came because these were people who witnessed him raising Lazarus from the dead. So they're all excited, and they come into Jerusalem, and they're shouting as he rides in on the donkey, and they're laying the palm branches down. They're laying their coats down, and they're yelling out to him, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you read Matthew's account in chapter 21, the whole city was stirred by this, and they began to ask, who is this guy? And the answer that came back was this. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Now, what's the problem? Jesus was veiled the first time he came. His glory was veiled. He didn't look like a king. He came in humbly. He's riding on a donkey. Come on. He doesn't look like a king. So they say, well, he's just Jesus. He's just a prophet. And he's from Nazareth. They were wrong on every account. He wasn't a prophet. He was God manifest in flesh. He wasn't a prophet. He was the Messiah. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords. But he was veiled. And he didn't come from Nazareth. He was the son of David. He came from Bethlehem if they'd paid attention. But they didn't know who he was because he was veiled. And you know where Jesus went when he rode the donkey into Jerusalem? He went to one place immediately. You know where it was? He went to the temple, and he evaluated the temple, and he made a whip, and he drove the money changers out. 
fast forward to Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is unveiled in Revelation. John sees him. John was there and saw him ride into Jerusalem. But on this occasion, John sees him unveiled in all his glory, and he falls down like a dead man, and he stands up and he describes Jesus. And where is Jesus? He's walking among the lampstands. He's back at the temple. Where's the temple today? I've been to Jerusalem. It's not there. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us we are the temple of God. We the church. We individually. He lives inside of us individually and collectively. We are the temple. And so Jesus, unveiled, is still evaluating His temple today. And that's what He does in these seven letters. He gives report cards to the seven kind of churches which really represent the seven kinds of Christians that exist today. So on a personal level, what does this tell us? When we come to church, Jesus comes to church too. Only He's not sitting in a pew. He's kind of restless. He's walking up and down the aisles seeing who's real and who's not. And he's not just evaluating the people sitting down, he's evaluating the guy standing up because he holds the seven messengers in his hand. He wants to see who's authentic and who's not. So when we gather in his presence, Jesus is not just sitting at the right hand of the Father in glory. He's walking around in our midst. He's inspecting, and he's examining. And he writes a report card to the church at Ephesus. And it has three parts. I want to walk you through them. The first is his commendation, verses 2 and 3. Jesus commends this church for five things. Number one, he commends them for being a serving church. Look at verse 2. He says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. I'm aware of what you do. This was a very active church. People were active in ministry. They were busy. This was not a passive church. These people didn't come in looking for the all-inclusive box seats. These people didn't come in looking to be served. They didn't come in looking to be entertained. They came in to serve. They were busy. They were serving in ministry. They found a ministry. They got plugged into a ministry. They served in that ministry. And Jesus looks at this church and says, I want to commend you for this. You're a serving church. Secondly, he commends them for being a sacrificing church because the next phrase says, not only your deeds, but your Toil. And that word toil means to labor to the point of exhaustion. So they not only worked, they worked hard. They were energetic. They sacrificed themselves, their time, their energy, their money. They were sweating for Jesus. They had sweatbands on, they had sweat socks on. They were working hard. And Jesus commends them 
not only for being a serving church, but for being a sacrificing church. And then thirdly, he commends them for being a steadfast church because the next word is perseverance. What's perseverance? That's when you keep on keeping on. They weren't just about the moment. They were in it for the long haul. They weren't hit and miss Christians. They weren't convenient Christians. When it's convenient, I'll serve the Lord. No, they worked in ministry. They worked hard in ministry. And they worked faithfully in ministry. They hung in there. They didn't say, I'm quitting because nobody patted me on the back. They didn't say, I'm quitting that ministry because somebody said something cross to me. No, they persevered. Fourthly, Jesus commends them for being a separated church. Look at the rest of verse 2. He says, and you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. They were a separated church. They didn't compromise. They were set aside morally and they were set aside doctrinally. Morally, Jesus says, you cannot tolerate evil men. This is a church that called sin, sin. And dealt with sin. They didn't flirt with it. They didn't, they didn't let it stay there. They understood the principle that a little leaven does what? It leavens the whole lump. They were serious about sin. But not only were they set aside morally, they were set aside doctrinally. Because he says, you put to test apostles who come. Now in that day, it was more common for men to just travel around and show up at your church and say, I'd like to preach today. He said, well, we don't know you, so let me give you a little test. What do you believe? They tested the apostles, and they found out those that were false. They weren't naive to say, oh, you're a preacher. Go ahead. You see, Paul had warned them in Acts chapter 20. He said, after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you. Now, how does a savage wolf, wolf come into the church? He comes in in sheep's clothing where inside he's that ravenous wolf. Well, they took Paul's exhortation seriously. And they tested these teachers. So this is a church that separated itself. They stood tall on the authority of God's Word. I think we have an example of that in verse 6. If you slide down to verse 6, it says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, who were the, the Nicolaitans? Some say this was Nicholas and his followers. Maybe it was. If so, history doesn't tell us what they believed, what false teaching they held to. Others suggest that maybe the name Nicolaitans tells us what they believed because the name Nicolaitan comes from two Greek words that you're familiar with. The first is Nike, and the second is laity. Now, you may wear Nikes and not know what they mean. Nike means conqueror. 
Laity means common people. So some suggest that their name tells us what they believed, and they were the first to initiate the clergy-laity distinction. The elevation of the clergy over the laity. They established this ecclesiastical order, this power hierarchy in the church. And if that's what they believe, what's interesting here is not only did the Ephesian church hate this, but Jesus says, I hate it too. And if you look in your Bible, you'll find there is no distinction of elevating clergy and laity. This has been incorporated into the church where the clergy says, I know better, so don't even read your Bible. Just leave that to me. I'm the professional. And that's done great damage in the church over the years. If you read your Bible, there is no clergy-laity distinction. In fact, the Bible teaches that every one of you is a minister. And my job is to equip you to do the work of ministry. I told somebody the other day, in the body of Christ, I feel like I'm the elbow. I'm always telling people, kind of moving the hand around. Here's what you need to do. That's our role as teachers, to equip you to do the ministry. And the word minister is not a very complimentary term because in the original it means servant. No one in the church is to be lording it over anybody else. We're all servants, and that's what we do. We are servants to Jesus Christ. And so, if that's what this means, then this church was saying, we take that seriously. And we're not going to compromise in that area. Now, when you get over to chapter 2 and verse 15, we find that the church at Pergamum embraced this concept. But the Ephesians church hated it, and Jesus commends them for that because he hated it too. So they were a separated church, morally and doctrinally. They separated themselves from evil people. They also separated themselves from evil preaching. And then he commends them for a fifth thing, and that is for being a suffering church. And I think that's contained in verse 3. He says, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown Weary. Now, he uses this word persevere a second time, and I think in this context, he's talking about the fact that the church hung in there in the tough times. They were not fair-weather Christians. They weathered the storms. When persecution came, they stood firm. They were a rock. They were a pillar. They endured. They persevered. Nothing sidetracked them. Now, what kind of persecution were they receiving? Well, we can guess. Because I'm sure they were receiving persecution from their friends, much as you may receive it from your friends. Our friend had to be saying, why don't you come to the temple of Diana anymore? Why don't you come tonight? We're having orgy night. Why don't you share in our lifestyle anymore? Why are you so different? And they're receiving this persecution from their friends. Obviously, they were also receiving it from the same merchants that ran Paul out of town because they're preaching the same message of the gospel, and so they're being persecuted from those who are making their living off of idols. And I love the fact that Christ doesn't overlook their motive in verse 3. He says, you're doing it for my namesake. You're not doing this for a selfish motive. You're doing it for Jesus. And he notices that. 
So Jesus commends them. They were serving, sacrificing. They were steadfast. They were separated. They were suffering. You say, this is a pretty fantastic church. If I was looking for a church, this is the kind of church I would want to join. I would certainly vote for them for church of the year. And I'm sure as the messenger showed up and opened the scroll and began to read this letter from Jesus, they're probably feeling pretty good at this point in time. They're feeling pretty smug. Yeah, that's us. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He gives a commendation, and then he gives a condemnation. And that's in verse 4. And verse 4 begins with the word, but. But is one of my favorite words in the Bible. I love it in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God. There's the bad news, but here's the good news. I don't like this but so much. Because this is good news and then the bad news. But is introducing the condemnation. You ever have somebody buttering you up and you're just thinking, there's a but coming. You know, you're saying too many nice things about me, there's going to be a but here. Well, that's what Jesus does. I heard about the doctor who went to one of his patients and said, I've got some bad news and some worse news. He said, what's the bad news? The bad news is you only have two days to live. He said, well, what could be the worst news? He said, I've been looking for you for a couple days to tell you. (laughs) Jesus gives them the good news, and now he gives the bad news. And it's in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Jesus only has one problem with this church. What is it? They had fallen out of love with Jesus. It's only one problem. But it's a big problem. Because the one thing that Jesus wants from you and me is love. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. It's no coincidence that the analogy used in Scripture for us as a church is the bride. It's a romantic metaphor. And the thing that our groom is looking for from us is love. That's why when Jesus came to Peter after Peter denied him three times, he found him on the shore of the lake. And the question Jesus wanted to know was what? Do you love me? If you're anywhere close to my age, you probably remember the old Paul Simon song. It goes like this, we work our jobs, collect our pay, believe we're gliding down the highway when in fact we're slip-sliding away. Slip-sliding away, slip-sliding away, 
You know, the nearer your destination, the more you're slip sliding away. I wonder if that describes your Christian pilgrimage. The nearer the destination, the more I'm slip sliding away. Slip sliding is subtle. Sometimes you don't even notice that it's happening. When we first come to know the Lord, our love is fresh. It's fervent. It's flowing. We walk around, as we heard the song earlier, just utterly amazed by the grace of God. Amazed that I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. My favorite song is, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. That's it. That's all I need. But you know, as time goes on, what starts out as a relationship can slowly but surely end up being a ritual. What starts out as a matter of the heart can slowly evolve into a matter of habit. What was once all about my devotion can now be all about my duty. What once was a blessing now seems more like a burden. And what once was full of passion now seems more like a project. That's what happened to the church at Ephesus. And if you're honest this morning, maybe that's what's happened to you. Now I want you to notice something. He says, you have left your first love. He doesn't say your first love has left you. Jesus never leaves us or forsakes us. Jesus, when we leave our first love, Jesus always comes and finds us. He may find you serving in kids' worship. He may find you playing in the praise band. He may find you on the shore of your favorite fishing hole like he found Peter, and the question he wants to know is, do you love me? I never have to ask Jesus that question. We leave our first love. He never leaves us. You say, well, what is first love? Well, if you're married here, you know. That's the dating love, the getting engaged love, the honeymoon love. You say, well, if that's first love, how do I leave it? Well, that's when you become so accustomed to the relationship that you take it for granted. And you still do the responsibilities, but there's no intimacy. I warn young couples all the time, your life is going to get busier and busier and busier, and when it gets busy, 
It's easy to wake up one morning and find that you're roommates rather than husband and wife. What happened? You're still doing the stuff, but there's no intimacy. There's no communication. There's no growing relationship. I love to be around new Christians when they first come to love Jesus. It's springing up in their heart. The love is fresh. It's hot. It's real. They're overwhelmed with the grace of, of God. They're thrilled to be a new creation. They're just ecstatic about having this relationship with God. And then years go by. And they get all their doctrine in the right slots. And they get themselves in the right pew. And they get in the right programs and they get the right pattern. They've got all the right answers and they've got all the right footnotes. And everything's organized, everything's orthodox, but everything's mechanical and cold. They're still serving. They're still busy. They're still committed. But they don't have that first love. They started out like Mary. Now they're like Martha. They started out like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, just adoring him. And they end up like Martha. They're busy, they're distracted, they're fussy. Let me ask you a personal question. Are you doing everything for Jesus and nothing with Jesus? Are you doing everything for Jesus but giving him your love? What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? He said, if I have the tongues of men and of angels, I have all the spiritual gifts. I give all my possessions to feed the poor. I give my life for other people, but I don't have love. What am I? I am nothing. I don't know about you, but this is convicting to me. Because I can be busy, busy, busy and sometimes stop in the middle of that and wonder, does Jesus really feel my love? That's Christ's condemnation against the church in Ephesus. But fortunately, he's not done. There's a third part to this report card. And that's the correction. And we see that in verses 5 to 7. Notice verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. 
Jesus exhorts them to follow three steps. These are the three R's to getting back to your first love. Remember, repent, and repeat. First of all, he says, remember. Remember from where you fall. Remember what it was like at the beginning in your relationship with Jesus before the love faded. Remember that. There's power in memories. You wives probably say to your husbands all the time, remember when you used to open the door for me? Remember when you used to linger on the porch because you wanted one more kiss? Remember when we would talk on the phone and we'd run out of things to say and you stayed on the phone just to hear me breathe? Remember that? Why do you record the wedding? Because you ladies like to put it in and say, remember what you said to me? Remember? When couples come to meet with me for counseling when they're struggling, the first question I always ask them is tell me how you met and what first attracted you to each other. And my goal is to get them talking about that first love again and praying that it'll help melt the ice in the room. I had the privilege this week to share my testimony with several guys. And it was so refreshing to talk about that again because it took me back to that point in time and reminded me of the passion I had at the beginning and stirred me up to say, I want that passion again. It starts by remembering. Second thing Jesus says is repent. Do Christians need to repent? Absolutely. You mean Christians who are obeying and serving and studying and enduring need to repent? Absolutely. I often hear people talk about the sinner's prayer. The best sinner's prayer I find in the Bible was prayed by a saint. And it's Psalm 51. where David writes a psalm of repentance and he said, my sin is ever before me. And he prays to God and he says, wash me, purify me, create in me a clean heart, O God. And then he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. What do you lose when you leave your first love? You're doing, 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 and you've lost the joy of that relationship because that's what love brings you. And David says, I want that back. Some of us need to repent. We need to say to the Lord, my Christian life is more about performance than passion. And I repent of the things that I've put in my life and the people in my life who have taken the first place that you deserve, that first love. And I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn around and allow you by your grace to change me. 
Remember, repent. Thirdly, repeat. Jesus says, do the deeds you did at the beginning. Do those things that characterized your life when you were a new believer. Do those things that flowed out of your love for Jesus when you were first saved. Some of us might feel a little silly doing some of the things we did when we were a new believer. Because we're too sophisticated. We're too mature now. We're too proper now. Which really means we're too cold now. We're too indifferent now. I gave my testimony this week. I was reminded uh, I was 20 years old in Colorado, uh, a professed hippie and had long hair and uh, I longed for those days. But I surrendered my life to the Lord and I went to a little church out there in Colorado. And the first Sunday I was there, I sat there in church feeling like I was out of place and they sang a hymn and the words went like this. I will love thee in life. I will love thee in death and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath and say when the death dew lies cold on my brow if ever I love thee my Jesus it's now I hadn't cried since I was 12 years old I was tough any emotion I had was artificial because of drugs And on that Sunday, tears started running down my face. Because I was telling Jesus that I loved him, and for the first time, I meant it. And I haven't stopped crying since. If you're here today, And you can honestly say, I've left my first love. Jesus says, remember. And repent. And repeat. If you need some incentive, he gives us some. He gives us a negative and a positive. Real quickly, the negative is at the end of verse 5. He says, or else... Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What's a lampstand? That's a place where the light sits. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He also said, you are the light of the world. Now there's a difference in those two lights. Jesus is like the sun, we're like the moon. The moon shows light, but it's reflected light from Jesus. So the way we show light is we stay close to the sun. And when we're far away from the sun, our light is diminished. And that's really what Jesus is saying. If you're going to go through the motions, 
If you're going to go through your Christian life in autopilot and not repent and not change, you are going to be powerless to impact the world because you're doing it all in your energy and your power and you will accomplish what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the negative. And then the positive, the end of verse 7. He says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Every one of these letters has a promise to those who overcome. Now, what's it mean to overcome if you're an Ephesian-type Christian? What did you need to overcome? Well, you need to overcome a lack of devotion for Jesus in your life. You need to stop letting your ritual and your responsibility overcome your relationship. You need to overcome Satan's attempts to put other things in your life first before Jesus. You need to overcome Satan's attempts to distract you into the kitchen like Martha. Instead of being in the living room at the feet of Jesus. Adoring him. And Jesus says, when you overcome, here's the promise, you get the tree of life. Now the tree of life, tree of life was in the garden, you remember, in Genesis. Now we find it's been transplanted and put into the paradise of God. Tree of life is the picture of eternal life. And Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And so eternal life is not about an abundance of time. It's about a relationship. It's about quality of a relationship with God. Now Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of life. They chose information over relationship. And Jesus is offering to you, he's saying, hey, overcome and choose relationship over everything else. And you will experience that tree of life, that quality of relationship that you can get nowhere else. Now let me close with this thought. Who is Jesus talking to in this letter? So he's talking to some church in Asia in the first century. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes, he's writing to a church, but who's he talking to specifically? Individuals. He says, if you as an individual hear, you need to respond. So Jesus is speaking to individuals in every age who have left their first love. So the question this morning is, is that me? Is that you? And if so, you need to remember and repent and repeat. Let me uh, close with this illustration. If my wife came to me and said, Danny, 
why do you do all those wonderful things for me? And I said to her, honey, it's because I am committed to the institution of marriage. There are too many divorces in this country, and by golly, we're not going to be one of them. I don't think she'd swoon. If she came to me and said, Danny, why do you do all those wonderful things for me? And I said, because that's what a good husband does, and I want to be a good husband. That's all about me. If she came to me and said, why do you do all those wonderful things for me? And I said, because you'd kill me if I don't. She's probably not going to swim. But if she comes to me and says, why do you do all those wonderful things for me? And I look into her beautiful, dark, hypnotic eyes. Thank you. I look into those one-of-a-kind eyes and I say, it's because I love you. And I can't think up enough good things to do for you because I want to show you how much more I love you. She might swoon. (laughs) You see, to the busy Christian, To the busy, busy, busy Christian, Jesus is saying, why are you doing this? Why are you doing all this? What's your answer for him today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord Jesus, thank you for this letter directed right to our hearts. And Lord, I pray today as you have challenged us that we would respond in obedience, that we would be those who remember and repent and repeat the first deeds that we come back to our first love Lord Jesus and make you first and foremost nobody close second to you in our lives and Lord I pray that today we can honestly and openly say to you we do what we do for you because we love you so much we just want to do more and more and more to show you how much we love you Thank you that we love because you first loved us and we can never out-love you. We can never out-give you. We just thank you that you are the beautiful Christ that draws our heart to you. Forgive us for not loving you back the way we should and accept our love today in your worthy name.